Welcome. Thanks for joining. I just wanted to take a moment to encourage anyone who hasn't listened to the very brief intro to the podcast to pause and do so now. It's technically the first episode and provides some helpful context about the nature of this project. So for any new listeners, I think this primer is pretty invaluable, especially considering how this podcast differs from most. I feel as though I'd be selling myself and my audience short if I didn't also comment on the decisions I've made about the way this project will exist in the world. For the moment, Impostors Anonymous begins and ends here. I've elected not to extend this project to any social media platforms as they continue to present uniquely severe and confounding barriers to communicating effectively and objectively. The jury is more than out on the dangers of the double-edged sword that is social media, and though I could spend hours on this topic, and maybe will at some point, I'll save everyone the headache and simply say that I've concluded that it's best for me to keep my distance altogether, if only in an attempt to prioritize my mental health. That being said, social media remains the most effective way to promote a podcast, or virtually anything for that matter. Considering that I would like this podcast to grow and reach as broad an audience as possible, the decision to abstain may prove to be foolish. But even so, it's the path I've decided to take, which is why I think it's important for me to take this time to suggest that if you derive any meaningful utility from this project and its aims, that you consider sharing this podcast with people in your life you feel might share a similar experience. I hope Imposters Anonymous can become more than just a drop in the ocean of content everyone is always being told they have to consume, but a means to start candid and impactful conversations about how we think about ourselves and the strange world we find ourselves in. Where this podcast goes will rely entirely on listeners being compelled enough by this line of reasoning to take the uncommon initiative to subscribe, review, and make an earnest attempt to introduce Imposters Anonymous to their relevant circles. To be honest, that's kind of exciting, and also a bit terrifying. But for better or worse, Here we are, and thanks for giving this a shot. You don't know how lucky you are being a monkey. The past is just a story we tell ourselves. Welcome to Imposters Anonymous. Chloe, Thank you. thanks for joining. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, 2021, how are you feeling? I'm feeling really excited that this uh, this last year is done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a little nervous about this one, but it's nice to have a clean slate. That feeling of just sort of like, okay, we can move on now from what's been happening. Yeah, that's the idea, I think. Everyone has a certain degree of optimism about this year, so it feels positive. I feel like that always happens where people, I think every New Year's Day, there's a little bit of like, this year is going to really be totally unlike all these shitty years we've been having. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, we'll see. You know, COVID's still out there. Yeah, that's that's the big one. (laughs) That's the, the 2020 thing that we'll remember the most, of course, but... Hopefully that's something that we can, you know, kind of get a handle on and, and we'll see what the year holds. But it's looking it's looking optimistic for sure. Yeah. You know, there's, there's definitely something there. Uh, but yeah, just to, to jump right into it, something I've been thinking about myself recently and especially just 
within the framework of this project is just how we tend to define and label people, especially on the creative front. So you, you typically see people talk about creatives and, and everyone else, you know, that there's, mm-hmm. there's this, you know, people are, there's these special people who are, who are able to come up with things and then everyone else who is stuck within this box. Um, but I'm a little more interested in how, like what we really mean when we say that as well as where that really comes from and is it something that can be developed you know is it is it innate uh or is it something that in theory if if people were in the right environment or given the right tools given the right situations is it something that everyone could tap into and as that pertains to you i of course know that you're an only child um i'm curious if you feel like that specific aspect of yourself contributed to the fact that we'll just say we can agree that you're a relatively creative sure imaginative person (laughs) you feel like that played a role yeah i do i've always pointed to my upbringing especially specifically as an only child when i've talked about sort of how i got into theater and particularly improv i think from a really early age performance held such a specific appeal to me and i think about just the way that i spent my time when i was younger Mm. being an only child i mean I had friends, I spent my time with people, um, but so much, I mean, so much of my time was just in daydreams or um, playing pretend by myself. And I think that that really led me to flex those creative muscles Mm -hmm. so much when I was younger. Um, And when I think back to myself as a child, I always have this um, sort of like, I was so creative then, Mm -hmm. I was so motivated then. I did so much um, like art and right. I miss having that. Um, it's like, it was like a pressure almost in the in mm. the form of just, there's nothing else to do. So I have to create something for myself. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that really made, made it kind of hit home for me recently is I just in conversation with someone else, I was thinking about, or well, basically I was explaining to them a certain visualization technique I've been struggling with in, in some of the meditations that I do. And I never had quite considered how that might be different individual to individual and how vividly you're able to visualize anything. I just kind of assumed that the way that that worked for me was similar to how it worked for everyone else. And for me, it it's honestly not that vivid. You know, I I generally struggle on that particular front to, you know, let's just say with my eyes closed to, you know, project something visually into that, you know, somewhat blank visual field and talking to others who had different situations growing up, one of them being an only child and one being someone who had older siblings who were kind of removed from her life, had a very, very different experience about how they could kind of manifest things in their mind visually. And I had no idea that that was kind of a somewhat normal capacity for others until I had tried these techniques and I was like ah, this just isn't really working for me like why why is this something I'm struggling with so much um but I I, I didn't play alone ever as a child you know I I was I my brother and I were very close growing up we you know grew up in a room together we spent pretty much every moment together of our lives that wasn't intentionally separate for school any games that I played all of that was within the framing of another sibling and I also had an older sister who kind of supplemented any time that I wasn't with them uh so I just never it wasn't something that I felt like was demanded of me at all as a child which 
obviously produce very different results in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah. But are you referring to this sort of, I've done this exercise before where someone says, you know, close your eyes and you walk into a room and you, there's a ball on a table and have you, have you, is this thing similar to this? Um, and you pick up the ball or you, you're supposed to visualize a hand picking up the ball off of the table and then open your eyes. And then you sort of ask all these questions. What color was the ball? What was the table made out of? What did the hand look like? Mm. Was it connected to a body or was it just a disembodied hand? Did you visualize the walls of the room? All of that stuff. I've done that with a group of friends before, and it's been really remarkable to one sort of see like, oh, where did this sort of idea in my Mm -hmm. own brain come from of like an opalescent ball or whatever, these weird details that just fill themselves in. And I've noticed for sure a lot of the people that I was with had a completely different visualization of just, it was a plain table, it was a plain ball, it was Mm -hmm. a plain hand, like nothing else came into it where my brain definitely automatically fills in all those details. Mm. Yeah. It's fascinating. fascinating. I haven't tried that specifically, um, but things somewhat similar or even just on a very basic level, trying to use something as as simple as a candle or a flame, you know, something very, very simple. I, I tend to struggle with, and it's not that I'm, because I think generally people would define me as someone who's relatively creative yeah and so it was kind of a surprise to those people that know me well to realize that I wasn't particularly visual in that sense um even though I I feel like I'm able to think pretty abstractly and craft a narrative and Mm -hmm. and and think deeply about things but it's not necessarily a very visual experience for me which I assumed was once again kind of normal right um and obviously has a flip side to it that in theory that is the the depths to which you can uh, dive down to, if you will, and experience that visually, it it increases kind of your range there where, sure, it's in a lot of ways potentially positive because you can be so imaginative and and playful. And it's, it's, from an artistic perspective, incredibly valuable to be able to kind of have an idea of what you're going for. And then it's just a practice of, of being able to- Just manifesting that. Right. Um, but at the same time, having to be aware of the fact that an individual with that capacity also, when you get stuck in your head about something or, mm-hmm. you know, when you have a, a terrible memory, you know, how vivid that is and, and how how easily that can come back or how hard it is to move on from things that you have thought about or experienced. It's, it's quite different. Yeah, I, I find that it's it's difficult for me to imagine I am close with a lot of people who don't have that sort of same kind of imagination Mm -hmm. who I still consider to be very creative people. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm someone who lives in my head so much and gets lost in daydreams so easily, Mm -hmm. which is something, again, I think I definitely sort of became accustomed to when I was young because a lot of times I mean, I just sort of didn't have anything to do. I was an only child. I also grew up in a tiny town in the middle of the forest that only had 2000 people in it. Mm. So there wasn't a lot of sort of stuff to do outside of my house either. Um, And, you know, I think a lot about just sort of one, like me playing alone in the woods up to a sort of fairly old age. Mm. Um, And then just also like the narratives that I would construct in my head and just be so satisfied to kind of sit at home and just like tell myself stories. Mm. 
And a lot of people didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> For sure. I mean, it's something I never even imagined. And I sure, like, I was aware of this kind of, I don't know, this meme that children would have imaginary friends, right. essentially, but never something that I even really? had any sort of experience with. That's interesting. And like I said, I, because I was always in relation to others directly. Right. It was just it never felt necessary. You didn't need to, yeah. Even though it, it seems like a very, a very interesting and valuable kind of adaptation, if you will, to be able right. to, to create things for yourself that kind of enrich your your life and your environment. But it always, I kind of, I didn't. Not that I thought it was a joke, but I was kind of like that. No one really had an imaginary right. friend, right? <laughs> you know, because I just couldn't. It was beyond what I had ever experienced, and. It's not until I was, you know, an adult and just started talking about these things that I realized it could have been so much different. And, and sure, I get it. Everyone's different. But I didn't quite realize, even especially when I think when you think about things that impact you at a very young age, you know, a very developmental stage right. in life where it's like, oh, OK, like this clearly could mold someone in a very significant way simply based on a single variable as simple as do you have siblings or not? Right. You know, but I'm curious if you felt, I know I got into a little bit of that side of things, but if there are any disadvantages or things that you feel like presented unique challenges to having that, that side of yourself that was so developed, if you will? Um, yes. Well, certainly it was difficult for me to transition into sort of a more traditional mm-hmm. environment. When I when I was 12, my family moved across the country. I started going to public school. Um, and that was like, just really jarring. Yeah. (laughs) A shock to my system for sure. Um, any only child will tell you, I think it's a lot of attention focused on you from your parents Mm -hmm. and that can sometimes lead to a little bit of a, um, like a confirmation bias in the terms of your behavior Mm -hmm. and like, you know, it's totally normal for me to just behave like that. You know, I don't know. You, you sort of get this sense of like, special flowerness mm-hmm. and it can be shocking to enter into i mean not every only child like grows up the way that i did uh sort sure. of none of them do yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> true everyone is so different oh and something i wanted to mention earlier was when i was a child growing up in this sort of wooded fairy tale land mm-hmm. um my best friend who was sort of my creative partner at that time like we did we had so many projects together we um, started a children's newspaper that was like published in the town newspaper. Oh, wow. Like we were really industrious mm. and motivated, which is something I miss. Um, but she had seven younger siblings. So she was really? very much the opposite of me in that regard. Mm. Um, and she was just as creative and very much, I would say a similar type of creative to me mm-hmm. in the sense that we always would write stories together. We would make movies using her dad's video camera mm. Um, we were always thinking about, and I think both of us had limited screen time that we were allowed to. I think right. that's also something that yeah, really sure feeds huge. into that. Um, but there's, it's, it, there's so many other factors that, that go into shaping that kind of, cause I think you can be a lonely child mm-hmm. without being an only yeah, child. For right? sure. Especially I feel like if you're the eldest, maybe, you yeah. know, so that you kind of, in theory, always went through those developmental you know, right. spaces of life being the it, 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 the only or the oldest, however you want to frame that. Right. Because sure, you have your younger siblings, but in a way they're kind of always, 
I don't want to say below you, but it's they're not it, as developed or right. They're not, not in the like same cognitive the space frontier <laughs> right. that you're pushing. You know, like yeah. when you're trying to discover yourself and all that, and just grow up. Yeah, you still kind of you put them in a little bit of a different space than you know maybe your imaginary friend Steve. For sure. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay, and then to veer back on course uh, with the disadvantages. Um, so I spoke a little bit about just learning to fit in. And that was something that I think came to me a little bit later than a lot of kids. And then I think children who have to, to some extent, compete for attention from their parents or mm. just aren't sort of the center of attention in their household, mm. learn a little bit more of the tools of sort of how to rely on yourself and how to self-motivate. For me, that's something I still struggle with. Um, I, I have a lot of concepts and ideas. And I always find it really difficult to make that transition from the sort of daydreaming phase mm. to the just like doing work and and putting right. that effort in, um, which I think a lot of people can probably relate to. Mm. But um, I mean, I don't know how much of that I can attribute to being an only child. though. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to attribute anything to one specific variable for sure. But I definitely think it's interesting just to to dig a little bit deeper on the things that we at least know to be true, you know, because we can't even really look at our genes and be like, yeah, no, right. I'm, I'm 45 percent. That came from my grandpa. Or something, yeah. You know, or, yeah, that this came from some distant relative. And we know that you're an only child. So it's something that we can kind of grab onto and say, hey, what it, how much can we attribute to this in, in a general sense or even just explore how that manifests itself or what situations it puts you in and all that. Um, but I think just to jump back to something you just said about how it's it's still something that, you know, maybe you, you might assume that an only child would have a, a disproportionate capacity to kind of maybe be a self-starter or, or to be, or you even mentioned being kind of, you know, pretty impressively industrious as a child and, mm -hmm. You mentioned that that's something that you kind of struggle with now. Is is there anything that you specifically attribute um, just kind of struggling to get into a creative state or start a new project or just kind of keep pushing things forward uh, these days? So you're asking sort of what what are my struggles with getting into a new project, uh, getting into that creative state? In a way, yes. I mean, I think even just by comparison to how you felt like when you, you were a kid, where it was like right. you were doing so much. And right. um, I guess my assumption is that to some degree that you felt like something changed. Yeah, or... what changed? I ask myself that every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I want, so one factor when I was a kid, I had my mom who, I mean, I still have her, but I lived with my mom mm -hmm. as a child, as many do. And she was such a um, force of just like, yes, you can do that. Yes, you can make that mm -hmm. happen. And I never really had that doubt um, when I was younger of like, I, I just think I had never failed before for in mm -hmm. a certain, you know, I like right. lost at games and stuff. But mm -hmm. I think that's certainly part of it. It's just that childlike sort of imperviousness to damage in a way. Mm. Um, and, you know, imposter syndrome is sure. such a big part of that. Mm. I think now something I struggle a lot with when I have an idea for a project is this voice that, says, you know, that's a great idea, but there are so many people who would be better suited to mm -hmm. execute that project more efficiently right. or more effectively. 
Um, even if it's, you know, my idea or, or something I wouldn't want to see necessarily in someone else's hands. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think that I, I often will have that self-doubt of like, well, that involves, you know, some degree of historical accuracy. So I can't mm-hmm. do that, for right. example. If it's not perfect, right. it's not worth doing. Yeah, I really struggle with that perfectionism. Um, I think something I've talked about in therapy is <laughs> the way that my perfectionism certainly arose from that only child experience mm. of just not that my parents necessarily had the expectation that I would be perfect. Right. <laughs> um, but I think I, that's an expectation that I've placed on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and having no peers to compete with as a young, a young one. Um, I think I always, I often held myself to the standard of like what my parents were doing right? because that was almost like my peer group yeah, in a way. Peer. Yeah. In, in the household at least. Um, and so I think that that did evolve into a little bit of a, well, I'm never good enough as what other people have already mm-hmm. achieved. And that can be difficult to like, right. just forgive yourself for in advance. <laughs> yeah. It's just a, a lot of eyes on you. And even if you, you know, you right. have the, the best of parents with the best of intentions, it still is just, it, it's you know, the math of it. It's just a hundred percent of the attention is going yes. to you as opposed to. <laughs> Parents kind of having to, you know, spread out their resources and their right. investment. And there's no like, oh, my, you know, my sister's a fuck up. So yeah. I'm allowed to make some mistakes too. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's something that to some degree, maybe I experience on a different level. And I by no means consider myself a perfectionist, but I, as it pertains to imposter syndrome, I had this moment actually when I first started this project mm-hmm. that despite everything that I've done to try to insulate myself from this, this imposter syndrome that I've struggled with and why I, for years, never started this podcast or did a thousand things that I said I was going to do. Despite all of that, in the very first episode I was recording, I, I get caught up on one fucking word. And <laughs> I, I can't remember where I'm going. I'm trying to say nihilistic. And <laughs> I just draw a total blank. A word Um, you probably use every day. (laughs) Sure. Probably too much. But uh, yeah, yeah, a word I use all the time and I I can't move on from it. And I'll admit right now, like on the record, I pause for way longer than is shown in the episode. (laughs) I am just sitting there like, I can't move on from this word. I can't replace it. Even though I know what it means, I could speak to what I'm trying to say in a different way, just not using that word. I just get totally locked up on it. And in that moment, I'm like, this is over. Right. This I is, can't do this. <laughs> this is, there's no reason for me to continue. This mm-hmm. is a waste of Josh's time. <laughs> I should just cut it right now and reassess everything. You know, like I genuinely felt that way in that moment. And lucky enough, or, you know, I was, I was lucky enough that in that moment, Josh being kind of seasoned in this sort of stuff, he helped me out. He just kind of picked it up and we moved on and it was fine. And I was able to eventually kind of get back into the rhythm of things and feel okay about it. But in that moment, I was just like, oh my God, you motherfucker. Like you right. almost quit <laughs> just because of that one thing that was easy enough to move on from. It wasn't right. even that big of a deal. People forget words all the time. It's it's just a part of speech. But in that moment, it was just like, It's the proof of what your anxiety has been telling you about yourself. Like, see, you (laughs) don't even know words. (laughs) You don't even know one single word. Uh, 
but yeah, it was just kind of a hilarious moment in a way in retrospect. So I was just like, oh my God, like that almost crippled you. Yeah. I almost like even, you know, went home that night and, and talked to my wife about it. And I was like, yeah, like it, it went okay. But like, <laughs> I, I just really fucked up, you know, like I, right. I really had to like explain to her where I went wrong and why it was wrong. And she was just like, I, I don't think that's that big of a deal. Right. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, yes, that is the truth. But uh for for a moment I just it almost derailed the whole thing you know and despite all the work I put into it it was just it's so easy to get caught into that yes that train of thought of just not not feeling good enough or not feeling qualified or just that you've you've somehow been tricking everyone thus far <laughs> by putting together sentences because right. this whole time you really couldn't speak <laughs> right <laughs> you know? it's all been a facade right um but just generally speaking, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about why it can be such a crippling force just in creative spaces in general. Imposter syndrome? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the creative sort of arena is so um, subjective. Mm -hmm. That's a big part of it. You're never going to outscore someone uh, on art or right. whatever. Um, so I think that that sort of really high degree of of just like immeasurability mm. definitely is a big part of it. Um, and then I think to, to a certain extent, this is true of every field, but I think s artists specifically feel this need to consume art in order to make their own right. art so much better sure. and more draw from all these different sources. Mm. And I always have this clear idea of what I want to create and mm. I want it to be as good as my favorite movies and my exactly. favorite books. And when I can't execute that on the first try, it can mm -hmm. be so crippling. Yeah. Or even uh, if you can, it's like, well, that's not even original. Right. <laughs> yes, for sure. That's always there too. Um, there's, yeah. Do you think, do you think it's more prevalent in creative spaces than in other spaces? I mean, to be fair, maybe that, maybe that is a bit of an assumption, you know, I, right. maybe because I've spent more time technically in creative spaces maybe not throughout my whole life because it wasn't always the case to be honest but because at least it's the way that I've struggled with it right. the most in in my experiences with with writing and, and other projects that I just felt like it was such uh, such an impediment at times sure but to be fair I don't know I feel like I've been better at faking it until I make it uh -huh. for whatever that's worth in other spaces where I've just I honestly feel like I can attribute a lot of the success in my life in other spaces by just like kind of having some sort of blind trust in myself that I'll right. figure it out. And I feel like it's so hard to do that with, with creative things, even though you would think it would almost be the opposite, right? right. That, that because it is all subjective, that it's all kind of positive. And, right. And that you can't it, just fail at it in right. that same outright sort of sense that I, I can fail at math. So, mm. so obviously and uniformly you right. know everyone will look at my math and say that's wrong yeah. but you can't really do that with art so much art is so personal though i think that mm -hmm. has to play a factor yeah again you know anything that's important to you is personal to a certain degree but i think people who are trying to make good art and trying to be artists for what mm -hmm. whatever that even means right yeah i think it's so tied up and i'm trying to express who i am in this piece of yeah. art or my thoughts about what the world should look like mm -hmm. or um 
you know, what, what has caused me pain in my life. I'm trying to work through in this piece of art. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, it's so hard to get like good, honest feedback as well, Mm -hmm. you know, because it is also very subjective and because generally you might, most often you would share it with friends or family first. Right. And so you always have this kind of fear that they're just telling you that it's good because they're close to you and they don't want to hurt your feelings Definitely. because it is deeply personal. And so it's it's hard. And then when someone gives you negative feedback, you're kind of like, well, fuck them. What do they know? You know, it's, it's right. kind of like... They don't know as much as I do about this. So <laughs> <laughs> with, with math, like you said, it's if you don't know the equations, you don't have the right skills, it's going to come through and you're going to have the answers wrong. And at right. least you can learn in a progressive and tangible way but in creative spaces, it's very hard to know that you're getting any better or that until, I don't know, some, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning writer is like, oh, that's good. And then you're right. like, okay, it's good. You know, that, right. but what would it really take for people to believe in themselves in that sense? It it seems as though there's no end to, to what we could convince ourselves isn't valid to some extent, you know? Definitely. And I think... There's also so many different schools of thought in art that even if you, let's say, did have some published author, award-winning mm-hmm. writer say, you know, great job, this should be published. Right. There are like a billion other published authors that would be like, no, that shouldn't <laughs> be published. And I think that it's terrible. Like, right. And I think that that author is terrible and should never have been given this platform. Mm. Like even sort of within the world of like, you have made it. I think exactly. there's so much like, opposition to different mm-hmm. or, or just diversity of of different ways of doing the exact same thing yeah it, it really just goes both ways equally because it's one of those things where you it kind of feeds into this fear but also is an enabler that you like you hear the stories about and i'm gonna blank on an example here but you can insert any great artist whatever they submitted their work hundreds thousands of times got mm-hmm. rejected until xyz happened and so in your head you're kind of like well even if people say it's bad it could be the greatest thing ever right if given an opportunity but then you also that that drives this fear that even like that you would never know that you're just not good at something even so if humiliating. you got <laughs> the right feedback you'd still kind of it, it's just it's so subjective that it, it's really hard to know and that's why so many people, at least from my exposure, especially, you know, writers and, and all kinds of artists still just kind of feel like it's almost like if you do one great thing, everything you do after that is great because people have this framing that they go into your work with where you, you pick up something by Salinger or whatever and you you can't read it as bad, you know, like you, right. because you're like, he's one of the greatest authors of all time, you know, so you go into it just looking for insight in everything you know and it's so hard but then when it's just someone like your your classmate or someone off the street is like hey read my book right and you're like even if it was the great american novel you'd kind of read it as like yeah this is there's so much bias this is a reach you know (laughs) yeah nice try That's definitely true. It's funny that you picked Salinger, though, because I feel like when I read Catcher in the Rye in high school, everyone was so split on their reaction to that book. And maybe that's just because we were like dumb. But Mm. I feel like that was the most divisive book I read in school, which 
it just makes me laugh that yeah, that was the no, one you I chose. Mean, <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, people aren't into, aren't into Salinger. I love Salinger, oh, okay. but a lot of people, I, I remember just being like, this whiny douchebag <laughs> needs to get over himself. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that that certainly makes it worse as well. But like, you can be like, okay, you could be as objectively talented uh, of an artist as right. J.D. Salinger and then like, you know, years down the line, there's going to be high school students that are like, half of them are like, right. this guy sucks. I you can't know? relate to this. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. You know, even if you reach those heights, right? at least half of people are going to be like, this mm, guy's a phony. Hack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Precisely. He gets it. Oh, wow. Something I, I talk about with my boyfriend a lot is the, what, what does the, how much does the intent of the artist matter mm. in the way that you consume that that right. piece um i think something a little argument that we get into a lot is and i this is something i think that i need to work on a little is like i will feel upset that he's not enjoying a movie or something the, the correct way gotcha and i i, I recognize the the flaw with that mm-hmm. um or just if he gets something out of it that i think is i think i think that while it the the intent of the creator is valuable in art. What's so cool about, about art is that different people can get something completely mm-hmm. different out of it. But at the same time, I feel like when I access what I feel to be the correct reading of the mm-hmm. work, it can be incredibly frustrating for me when someone else is like, you know, Oh, I just, it didn't speak to me or like, I thought that it was kind of fun on a surface level. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You aren't thinking right. about it's, it. Right. You don't get, you <laughs> yeah. know, I, no, I mean, I get that. It's, it's frustrating, and I guess being on either side of it, it can be this similar set of frustrations where you would kind of not be upset, but be frustrated if you put something out into the world and people interpreted it entirely differently from what right. you had intended. Even if it was generally positive, you'd still be like, ah, but these people aren't, they're missing the point. So it's still, you want to know it's still, it's a valuable variable to know what the artist intended. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I always thought it was kind of outrageous when there would be like, so I took like a, I don't know, some sort of standard English course my freshman year in college. Mm -hmm. And I remember having a teacher just like hammer on us so hard about like the accepted framing of this story. I think it was Bartleby the Scrivener or something like that. Uh Um, And just like not engaging anyone on anything that was outside of like, this is just what we know to be true about this story. And it was just, he was so bullish on it that it was, it didn't even seem like it was necessarily like what the artist was going for. It was just like, this is what the academic community has decided is the best way to think about this thing. And anyone who tries to speak to anything else, they're just wrong. And it's kind of the antithesis of art in a way. Right. And then sure, like maybe I feel like maybe the artists themselves could say that. I, I feel like they could have, you know, something to stand on and say like, but guys, this really isn't what I was going right. for. You know, this is getting out of hand or especially if it's having negative side effects in the world or something, you know, like if people mm-hmm. are hurting themselves or, or taking it super negatively and someone has to step in and be like, hey, no, this was I wasn't trying to say that. Back to Catcher in the Rye, right? It was mm. in the pocket of the assassin of John Lennon, right? Right. And I, I would argue that that's not in the text of that book, but that, I forget his name, uh, 
Lee Harvey Oswald, or was that a presidential assassin? That sounds right. One of those three-name guys. I'll I'll look into it. (laughs) I'll clarify if we're wrong. Uh, He certainly got out of the text of that book, that interpretation, which I think most people would agree is universally not there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's it's tough because that's, in a way, it was just like another one, you know, another tally for not creating things, you know? It's because (laughs) people might misinterpret it and then you would feel on the hook for any sort of negative manifestation in the world if people take what you say the wrong way or if someone right. gets offended or is made uncomfortable or because it's it's their experience and you can't necessarily like it's I mean sure you can blame them for that on on some level but at the same time it's if if bad things happen to some degree because of something that you did it's hard to just distance yourself from that even if your intent was nowhere near that and right. I, I'm certainly a believer that intentions matter i tend to think they matter more than maybe the average person at the end of the day but it's it's definitely hard to move on from that if you know let's just say you're salinger and Mm -hmm. and and you you know that this person acted because of what they thought was a close reading of your work you know that's that's just another risk you kind of have to take by to be fair just by being a person in the world you know you could make a comment on the street to someone or you could look at someone the wrong way and and they could misinterpret it and it could have negative side effects. So it's, I guess, just kind of a hard aspect of being a person. Yeah, unattended consequences. Right. You're going to, sometimes people are going to suffer because of things that you did and you didn't mean to and you shouldn't necessarily be on the hook for that, but it doesn't really make you feel better in the moment. Right. Um, But I, I sometimes think about if having some sort of a more consequentialist or even collectivist viewpoint on creative work could be something that would be valuable to society, where if it was like anytime something brilliant was was created, it was like a, a win for everyone in a way, you know, to put that in, I guess, in simpler terms, it, it didn't, it doesn't matter who did it. It's not about the individual. It's just like, this is something that a human was able to create. And this is, a story or an inspiration and it doesn't even matter who did it. It's just like, this is something our species is is capable of. And that's cool. You know, and instead of being like, let's, let's hoist up this person who did it uh, or let's like beat them down if it sucks, you know, let's just (laughs) acknowledge that this is kind of a, an achievement of of humanity. And if it has positive consequences in the world, then that's, that's what we should care about. Um, And it kind of reminds me of, what I once read as like kind of a, a Greek understanding of genius, which is that uh, I guess the way we use it now is that someone is a genius mm-hmm. where in the, a close translation in, uh, in Greek was that essentially you would have a genius. So genius was kind of like a spirit or something that would take over you in mm. the moment or, you know, it, it was, it was basically inspiration and it wasn't you. It was just something that happened to you. And if you were like lucky enough to have a genius for a time and, and do something brilliant or, you know, innovative, that was super exciting for everyone, but it wasn't, there was no shame or, or guilt behind failure as well, because it's not like they were necessarily hoisting people up for their work, but they weren't, you know, no one was on the, Like if you just put something out there and you suck, it sucked. You could just be like, I wasn't possessed. Yeah. It wasn't my idea. Like it was, right. it just kind of came over me and uh, I just shared it with everyone. And that's, that's that. I love that idea. 
I, I think that would be a helpful way for us to think about it now, because I think one, if you've been labeled a genius, that can be an insane amount of pressure mm. or even, you know, genius is a big word, but just, you know, an artist or someone right. who excels. Um, and, and I think that can also, I'm sure lead to, I mean, it certainly leads to this sort of imposter syndrome feeling of, mm. well, this person is just a genius and it comes so easily to them and right. I have to work so hard at it. And it's not, I'm not possessed by that same sort of creative spirit. Mm. Um, I really like the artist, John Baldessari. Mm -hmm. And he has said that he specifically talks about um, being possessed by like the spark okay, yeah. or the creative spirit. Mm. And he like something that he really emphasizes is that you can't will that it's just, it comes over you. And when that does, you have to write it out and just drop what you're doing and mm. like, allow yeah, it to take over to right else. eventually it'll it'll leave and then you can go back to your life mm. um which is something that i think i that really hits home for me because mm. it def it definitely does feel like something that you can't will it just happens or it doesn't right. but i also think that that's not an excuse to you know not work on right, your stuff course. when you're not feeling inspired and i think certainly that Every like creative writing teacher I've ever had has really emphasized the importance of writing in your journal every day mm -hmm. for 20 minutes or half an hour or whatever time you right. sort of sit. I had a teacher who said that she literally would like take a piece of floss and tie her ankle to the chair in the morning <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just so that she wouldn't get up and yeah. go get a cup of coffee or whatever. Um, and I, I, that's something I struggle with. I struggle with routine in general, but mm. I think that just flexing that muscle, right. right? Makes it so much, I think that the genius like takes over more frequently when you right. just sort of- You have to be there. Right, you know? exactly, yeah. <laughs> and if you're- you <laughs> To know, be open to it. You're out in the world doing shit, it's, you, you kind of, you know, put on silent, if you will. You know, where oh, sure. if you're sitting there kind of showing up every day, you're just increasing your chances of, of capturing something valuable, but it does take a lot of days of, of not a whole lot coming. Feels grueling, you know? yeah. And just being like- this is nothing. <laughs> this is not. This is not interesting. This and isn't going anywhere. Really hard to keep doing and keep saying. I'm going to keep sitting down and writing today. I drank coffee and mm -hmm. you know watched a movie. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's something I've personally actually been trying to work on, just on a daily basis to just get better at at this whole thing that we're doing right now. Is just on my on my rides wherever I'm going while I'm driving. I'll just kind of put my phone on record and just start saying things. And half the time it doesn't really make any sense. Um, sure. But it, it is, like you said, just kind of flexing that muscle of talking through my process of, of being me and, and just what I'm experiencing in the world, what's happening for me today. It's, it's kind of like a, a journal, if yeah. you will. But that, that simple practice, even if it's, you know, just 10 minutes of just talking things through, I find has, has been very valuable for me. And just feeling a little bit more confident in in what I'm saying and where I'm going with things and just becoming more familiar with my own speech patterns and, and things like that, where I feel like a lot of it is is confidence at the end of the day. And if you're writing to your example all the time, even if it's not your favorite stuff in the world, it starts to kind of have a snowball effect where you're like, well, I write every day. So so something is I'm I'm a writer, you know, right. at least in the very practical sense. Which you literally can claim <laughs> I'm a writer. I'm doing it. Um, 
I, I was curious about, and this is something I used to struggle with a lot. And I guess, I don't know why I say used to, I, I do all the time and sure. still, <laughs> still do, but just kind of this idea that, that everything you've ever done is impossible to read back over, to listen to, or to look at whatever, you yeah. know, your space is that everything that you've done in the past, it's just like, it's this grueling process to, to read back over or to consume, um, and I just always felt like it was such a challenge to be okay with where I was at any given moment, because anytime I looked back, it just it was in, so intensely critical about anything I'd ever done and hard to feel good about it. Even when I did like instantly after, you know, I was like, oh, this is really good, you know. Uh, but like 24 hours later, I could look back at it and be like, what was I thinking? Yes. I always experience this. Uh, I, I just had like a, a very sort of memorable version of this of I have been working on this short story for a lot of quarantine mm-hmm. um or this year actually I guess I can yeah, say just, yeah. <laughs> well it's 2021 now so yeah that's true yeah. last last fucking <laughs> last year, year that's crazy <laughs> sounds wrong <laughs> that really does but um something I was really excited about I feel like I was talking a lot with my boyfriend and like to my parents of just you know I, I can't wait to show this to you mm. I, I really want to get some eyes on it and like finally got to sort of a place where I was like, that's the end. And I, you know, that was the first draft. So I need to go back through mm-hmm. and, and re redo it yeah. or just make it good. <laughs> and just immediately like, you know, this feeling like on the first read through it, just this just feeling dread. of it just pride, just crumpled. Like it was just mm-hmm. gone and instantly was like, Oh, I don't want to show this to you. I shouldn't mm-hmm. have said anything. Like this is terrible. Like mm-hmm. it, it's, I mean, for me, I think it really is that transition from something that lives in your head and has potential to, oh, I did not meet that potential, Mm -hmm. even though no one's first draft of anything is ever the finished version. Again, I think that's where my perfectionism really plays in of like, if I can't do it right on the first time, I'm I'm just like a complete waste of (laughs) (laughs) humanity. Yeah, exactly. Something, uh, this is just another example that that reminded me of that I, this is something I've been trying to kind of remind myself of because mm-hmm. I feel like this was such a ridiculous instance of this that it has almost been like inspirational to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've gotten, like many people in 2020, really into cooking and um, decided to make eggs, this like vegetarian version of Eggs Benedict at okay. home yeah. um, with like artichoke hearts and cream spinach instead of the ham and oh, like yeah. a poached egg and hollandaise sauce, like a very sort Sounds of, great. it was delicious, but um, not super easy. Like mm-hmm. I'd never poached an egg before and hollandaise sauce is not easy to no, make. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was doing that and like just being so hard on myself, this thing that I'd like never done before. Mm. No one taught me how to do it. Like I was just sort of reading how to make hollandaise sauce online um, and kind of like was really hard on myself when even though the whole thing kind of turned out well, the hollandaise sauce was kind of just like melted butter. Yeah. And I like was like, oh, I should just throw this <laughs> yeah. all in the trash. Like it's not right. even worth eating the English muffin. Like just Chef Ramsay style. Right. Like... Just like into the garbage. <laughs> and my boyfriend was like, you know, melted butter sounds delicious. Yeah, like I, I want to pour it's that. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Right. Exactly. And so I feel like after I kind of came through that, I was like, that was a little bit of a ridiculous thing to let myself hate myself over. Right. And melted butter is quite delicious. Yeah. And I feel like I try to, remind myself like 
be okay with melted yeah, butter. Melted butter is, is a huge <laughs> win wrong, in yeah. most situations <laughs> yeah. in life. No, I, I like that a lot. I, I think it's there's always kind of this weird silver lining there as well. That in theory, it's actually a very good sign that you, in a way, don't like your previous work because it means that you're evolving and, and changing as an individual, and you're you're growing in your craft for whatever that is. So of course. If you're if you're constantly improving, you're, you're going to look back and say, "All right, like even if I wrote this a couple of weeks ago, I've made that much progress in the past two weeks that I just have new things to say." And why it's also so valuable, or even just important, to just continue to be generative. And that's why I feel like sometimes that was a block for me is when I wasn't, you know, let's say I didn't write or do anything for a year let's mm-hmm. just say and then i look back and it's like ah oh, fuck you know the last thing i wrote i really hate mm-hmm. but if you just continue to work at it if on a day-to-day basis you're you're giving yourself feedback and things to work with it's hard to be that critical because you you feel like you're more reflecting your current self and your capacities when you're constantly working at it but when there's that much distance it's very difficult to definitely you know to look back years and be like you were you actually were a different person then yes and being okay with that I feel like it's so important for me in life is because it's so easy to look back on whether just be past mistakes or things that you did that you're not proud of and because we identify so strongly with who we were at that time obviously it was us but I think sometimes it's it's hard to come to terms with how different we are even just on a day-to-day basis and how literally everything that you experience changes your brain in small ways it's such a positive thing when you say it that way (laughs) (laughs) yeah it it really is and sure it's easier said than done to remember that all the time but in in a way we are these you know these constantly evolving and improving beings that it's okay to look back at a snapshot in time and, and accept that okay that was the best that i could do for what I was in that moment. That's always the case. Mm-hmm. And I know that's it's especially hard to accept in really terrible situations or in huge mistakes, but you just were what you were then and you're not that anymore. And that's a good thing. You know, it's yeah. it's a good thing that you have have gotten to a point where you can look back on that and have a different or a more positive or, or more right. evolved perspective. But it's, I think this, this idea that we get fixed on that we're just this kind of static permanent self that I, and I don't even understand where it comes from because it's like what was it you know maybe one day when you were five years old you were just like that's me and then <laughs> it's just been you since then you've just been you alt know? editing yourself to fit that right right uh that we just kind of have this idea that you know we were born as something just incredibly distinct and static and that that's just always what you're gonna be and I think it's it's becoming pretty clear even just from the the rough understanding that we have from a you know a neurology and a neuroscience perspective that that's just not true. You know, you, you look right. at brain scans, they change over time. Like things are happening in there and our, our brains are incredibly elastic, but it's it, it's hard to do that for ourselves. And when we look back on things, it's always just like that was your fault. And that is who you are at your core. Instead of looking at even our brightest moments, and I think that's where a lot of... Right, and you go, that was a fluke. Yeah, or or even the other side of it, someone who's incredibly egotistical, where they do kind of just, they they see their their peaks and they're just like, no, that 
That right. is who I really That's my am. True self. Yeah. <laughs> and everything else is because the world is, you know, trying Against to get in me. my way. Right. But that one time I did that awesome thing, like that's who I truly am. Um, when, you know, in essence, we're, there's, there's nothing clear that we really are. <laughs> and right. we're, we're just, we're just trying our best. Right. But it's, it's hard to get us there. just a series of sort of accidents. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> you know, it's hard to kind of think about it that way sometimes and still feel like this kind of autonomous you know, willed being in the world that like can make things happen and still be, still be generative and, and motivated when you're like, this is all kind of random and absurd. You know, right. it's, that can be a hugely limiting factor. And I, it, it's something that I, I do struggle with at times as well, where everything is kind of, it's kind of random and, and, and luck based. And the fact that I'm here with you having this conversation today is is due to so many things that have nothing to do with anything I ever elected or, or chose or, right. or any of that. And the default is often to feel guilty about that, right? You know, that you that you don't deserve what you have, but it doesn't really get us anywhere, you know? And it's it's hard not to feel that way when you compare yourself to others who who have less or you, you look at the counterfactuals of history and say, like, you play out how things could have been differently if just one moment had, had tipped a different direction. But Right. It's an easy way to go insane. Yeah, it's kind of just a rabbit hole. You know, like yeah. it never is going to get anywhere that's going to help you. And as much as we can try to just accept the fact that things are playing out how they are and we should probably try to make this as, you know, comfortable and, and suffering-free as possible for, for ourselves and those around us, so it's a great place to, to generally start, but we tend to kind of exclude ourselves from that equation generally where it's like, oh yeah, like we want our loved ones' lives to be to be nice and comfortable and we give them the benefit of the doubt and we, we believe them and we trust them. And then for ourselves, we're kind of like, ah, but remember that time when you were seven right. and you like, you know, threw away your mom's hot dog? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I, it's so easy to extend that sort of benefit of the doubt to your loved ones too. Mm-hmm. Of just they were, they were stressed or whatever. They made the wrong choice. Where I, I for one, never allow that for myself. Mm-hmm. And I think something, a tool that I learned in therapy was to think about your inner child mm-hmm. when you're being hard on yourself right. or when you're um, just like cursing yourself or being mean like something I've struggled with is negative self-talk and trying to undo that pattern mm-hmm. um and to just sort of remember like that little child that's inside of you that's just trying to figure out what's going on and make sense of the world mm-hmm. um you would never berate a child right in in that same way yeah no absolutely that that resonates with me a lot and it's I guess starting to be a recurring theme here but another form of meditation that I, I try to practice regularly involves just it's generally framed as like loving kindness so it sounds kind of a little bit woo woo you know like it's kind of you it it starts with you thinking about someone that you have this kind of uncomplicated relationship with you know it's not even family or uh whoever just someone that like is just only a positive force in your life that it's it's simple you just it's easy to wish them well you Mm -hmm. know that you that to see them you know accomplish you know whatever would be the the greatest thing in their life or just to feel overwhelmingly positive or to have their greatest dreams be actualized that's just this overwhelming 
really positive experience for you. It, it starts there and that's pretty easy, right? You know, I think everybody has someone that they can draw on where it's just like, of course I would want them to, you know, be free of suffering or, or be at peace or, you know, just live a, a good life. And then, you know, it continues to, to move from that point and then you move to someone that's, it's a little more complicated with, you know, someone maybe that you would say you, you dislike, or you try not to think about, and you try to extend those same feelings to them, which is obviously much more challenging. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and something that I, I tend to actually not to pat myself on the back, but like I do okay with that part. And then the final step of course, is to turn it on yourself. Mm -hmm. And that is where a lot of people, you know, hit a huge wall and, the thing that kind of at least helped me get over that was using that same kind of framing where it's okay. Think about yourself as a small child, right? You know, a child that you would never blame for anything that they experienced or did uh, this perfectly innocent version of yourself. That's just kind of stumbling through the world, just trying to be okay and figure things out. And that has no idea the trajectory that you'll end up on in life or that you'd be right here, you know, in this circumstance. And they're just, it's, it's impossible to, to feel like hate for that version of yourself. Even if you right. can't quite get to the wishing them well, if you will, it's, it's very hard to feel intensely negative for that version of yourself forever, whatever you've been through, you know, especially right. at that age of life that that was this kind of, pure version of yourself that was in theory when most of what impacts how you behave now was decided, you know, like when you were experiencing the most significant developmental things was that at that age where you didn't really have a say in that and just being able to, to have that to turn to, I found to be very valuable in that context to kind of have some, to just to recognize like you really are here for yourself right now. Like you're doing this because you, you want to have a, a more enjoyable life. Like you, you want to be better for your, your friends and family. You want to be at peace. You, you want to be less reactive. These are, these are signs that you want good things for yourself. Right. Like, you know, you're in therapy, you, you want things to be better. Right. That's proof of that. Um, but it even, even to extend that to someone that you, you know, you dislike and you're like, okay, think of them as a child though, you know, right. Think about everyone as a child. And that's because it's kind of more so how we actually are. We just yeah pretend as though we have everything together and that we've got things figured out and we're adults or whatever, right. but we're kind of little children in there, you know, certainly for whatever that's worth. Yeah. That is very interesting. It's easier to see people for their flaws, mm -hmm. in my experience. And that's probably not true of everyone. But I do think that that's something that's somewhat natural, is to maybe define people in, to a certain extent by their shortcomings. Unless, I'm, you know, I'm not talking about, like, my dear, dear ones. But, sure. Um, yeah. But still even that, to a certain extent. You know, like, I, and I, I'm curious... If you think that there's any sort of a connection there between having that sort of refined critical eye and being in a lot of creative spaces growing up, because I feel like though I didn't as much as I got more into that side of things, I feel like it does kind of tune your ability to be critical of things in a way that seems kind of redundant because art is supposed to be this kind of free creative space where everything is somewhat positive and to be accepted. 
But at the same time, I feel like someone who's like a, an art critic or a film mm -hmm. critic or whatever, like their whole job is to sit there and just to kind of not, it just seems like there's so much more negative than positive just in the framing because you're trying to to analyze everything that that could have been done better, even just like going, you know, doing editing, something sure. that I know you have experience with, like that is your job is to go in and just find everything that's wrong right. with the situation. Um, but I feel like it sometimes makes you, it just refines that, that tool yeah. a little bit too much. Definitely. When I was taking film classes in college, uh, once you sort of got into those advanced classes, they were all these sort of, the structure was you, you would bring in your finished project mm -hmm. and you know, you don't just show it to the teacher, you screen it for the whole class. Oh, geez. <laughs> and like, this really was something that was hard for me. Um, and the whole class sits there, you would do two or three each class period. And mm -hmm. basically they have half an hour to just point out, this is what you should have done differently. This, you know, mm -hmm. to critique it. And usually, you know, people will point out what they liked about it too, but even in, with the best projects and people's really good work that people universally liked, it's a class. And so people mm -hmm. felt like they had to sort of say, well, you know, this could have been tighter or this part was too long or mm -hmm. this part didn't make sense. And that's so important to art. Like, yeah, you know, of course. But it, it can be so difficult to like go through that process. Mm -hmm. I know that that was something that I really struggled with when I was in school and it made it really hard to even like accomplish like get work in on the deadline because mm. I would be like, if I turn it in late, I don't have to screen it in class and yeah. I'll get 10 points off or whatever. Um, it, yeah. And I think that there is so much training to, to be, to be critical within those creative spaces. I also feel something when I took creative writing, which is something I feel comes more naturally to me than something like filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Um, there tends to be a little bit of, you know, all these plebeians don't know how to write. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's definitely there. Yeah. And I, I think it's, to some extent, there's, there's a reasonable explanation there that you're kind of trying to, like, if I'm any good at this, I kind of have to be able to have a, a good bullshit meter for things that aren't good, right? You know, right. like, you feel like that's, to some degree, a litmus test for your you know, your quality of work is that you are able to identify when, when others aren't legit, or, you know, right. or when they don't know what they're, they're You don't doing want to be taken in by something that is revealed to be bad art. Right, that's basically <laughs> creating bad art. If you like, if you like something that other people think is bad, yeah. that's as bad as putting forth something, you know, like Absolutely. you never want to be it's the one who like thinks that this movie is great. And then everyone else was like, are you serious? Yeah. Like that was, did you see it's Ron Tomatoes score? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> what are Absolutely. you thinking? Um, Going back really quickly to John Baldessari, this artist I love, he mm -hmm. made, he had a whole series of art that was called bad art and he would take photos that intentionally had bad composition mm -hmm. or make a really long, boring video of him writing, I will not make any more boring art over and over again until the tape ran out. It's right. pretty boring sure. to watch. <laughs> um, and I love that kind of the way that he em embraced what not to do in mm -hmm. art and sort of what is universally sort of dis like someone who someone who isn't trained in art might mm -hmm. look at a picture with bad composition and think that's a great photo and see something in it that's really beautiful. Right. But an artist who goes through training is never going to take that photo, mm -hmm. for example. 
Um, and I, I, something I really love about that artist is just his sort of uh, examination of like, what have we just decided can't even enter into the conversation mm-hmm. and what value would that add if we allowed it to be part of the conversation? Yeah. Oh, that's really, it's really interesting. And I, in a, in a similar way, like I just sometimes wonder, because I always felt this way in school and you, you were like assigned books. Right. And it's always, you always know that whatever you're getting is supposed to be like, you know, the highest of the high art. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're always, you know, just kind of reaching to find, as I kind of spoke to earlier, like you're trying to find the meaning, you're trying to be moved and inspired mm-hmm. by this. And I always just kind of wondered, like, what if they just snuck a garbage one in here? You know, like, what if they just, yeah. you know, they snuck a really bad book in here that was, wasn't even published. It was just <laughs> nonsense, you know, like, sure. wh- how would we read this if, if we just had no idea and they put some famous author's name on it. Right. And they just were like, here you go. Like, read this and write an essay on it. And just to see how everyone would kind of squirm to make this this incredible piece of art. Right. That I guess maybe it is, if if that's how people interpret it. But right. it's it's certainly interesting that it just seems like there are, there is a certain set of criteria, like you said. You know, if someone... The photo has bad composition. It's like, okay, I won't even look at it. It's right. not, you know. Just with, disqualified. Right. It's not even, it's not even worth looking at. And we want to discourage anyone who would take that photo to, to continue to do that. And it certainly begs the question of what are we missing? You know, like what is being left out? Right. Just because people who don't have technical knowledge are, are being totally eliminated from even exploring this when right. clearly that's only one facet of what's valuable there. Right. Right. Or just because a somewhat arbitrary set of rules have been put in place, even someone with technical training, if they just chose to sort of forget that mm-hmm. idea of, I mean, I'm using the photo example of like, what, how could you push sort of your limits in, in what you're able to mm-hmm. create if you just sort of let go of that rigid structure of what it's supposed to look like right? or what you have been told any worthwhile piece of art has to Mm. look like yeah and i mean i think to some extent it does it does come down to the framing and how we think about it as a society and if there was a certain detachment from our output that would obviously be so different you know if we were able to put things out into the world and it really and you know sure it seems like i'm kind of you know, giving a nod to the the nature of this podcast, but if everything was in a way kind of anonymous and that it was, it was only about what, what people got from it and that we, we just kind of relished in the, the, whatever meaning we derived from it as, as a collective. And I just wonder what that would do for art. If it just, we never knew who did what and everyone was allowed to just put everything out there without, any sort of other attachment or framing to it. I'm right. curious if half the shit that's in museums would be there, you know, or if, right. if museums would just look just utterly chaotic and different, you know? I love to imagine, yeah, what what that would be like if art was anonymous. Because I feel so many people, even myself, I catch myself daydreaming about, you know, what I'm going to say when my best-selling novel, right. you know. It, be ready. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, You'd be phony if you weren't. <laughs> right. But instead I could be working on my novel, mm. you know, like yeah. it's, I get, I get caught up in the sort of like that pursuit of glory that I think mm. isn't why I 
am an artist or why I enjoy creating art, but it certainly is wrapped up in it. Mm. I think to a certain extent for everyone, you want recognition. Right. And I think it would make it so much more of a pure expression of just human, the human experience, right. right? If you, if you weren't trying to tie it to your legacy. Yeah, no, I think we have this strange relationship with, as, as you put it, glory, or maybe even redemption that you might mm-hmm. be able to, I think that's some of the draw to creativity is that you might be able to create or put something out into the world that would like, you know, just essentially balance the universe for you. Mm-hmm. That like every bad thing you've ever experienced or like right. anytime anyone's misjudged you or... Now they know who I really am. Right. Like, yeah. look, look, you know, look at me. I, I did this thing. <laughs> you, you know, you should have texted me back. <laughs> you know, that, that kind of feeling that we have that that's just kind of pure ego in the world that we deserve to have this moment where you know, anyone who ever had the wrong idea of you is just totally blown out of the water. Right. Catharsis. Um, right. Um, but uh, as we've kind of talked about, if it was anonymous, there would, there would be no drive. So maybe, I don't know, maybe fewer people would try these things. Who knows? Maybe right. more would. It's, it's hard to say. And it seems like to some extent we'll, we'll never know, but I think in a way we can maybe get closer to that by, just caring less, you know, about, mm-hmm. even though, of course, it's information that in most cases we're going to have, just trying our best to put less emphasis on where it's coming from, you know, and just yeah. trying to experience it for what it is. I like that a lot. And so much of the, so, so much of my reading of art is informed by the context of the artist too, that mm-hmm. it's definitely very interesting to think about how I might, you know, when I go to the museum and look at paintings, I think a lot of how I'm taking in that art is what do I know about the artist and, and her life and, and how this probably means this because she went through, she lived through this war, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think I almost have a little bit of a fear, I think of going into, for example, a, a museum without that kind of ability mm. to like Google the artist and read their quick right. biography or whatever, because then, I mean, back to my ego, like that opens up the possibility of me reading it wrong, for mm. example, or, or getting the wrong, the quote unquote wrong thing out of Definitely. it. Um, which is not what art is for. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's interesting that you say that because it seems as though in a certain framing, you know, if you had your, you know, your 500 word bio on someone, and they kind of explain the adversity that they've overcome or whatever. And then it, it could be anything, you know, the mm-hmm. actual art could be anything. And you'd be like, this is a triumph, right. you know, <laughs> like, right. and in a way, shouldn't we kind of think that way about everyone, right? You know, that it's a triumph that they elected to put this out into the world, you know, that right. they, they took the step and they, they just said, fuck it. And, and they put themselves out there. And if we saw all art that way i think we'd have a much a much different lens to look through but it's it's just so hard to remove ourselves from that context because as i say in the intro to this show it it does matter it's not like it doesn't matter at all Mm -hmm. and it still gives us information to to contextualize what we're experiencing so it's it's not that it's useless information but in theory if we could try to at least interface with it first without that information and then after maybe even be like oh okay like this 
this gives us an interesting edge. Right. But getting it on the front end, it just seems to be such a limiter at times that it's it's all we can think about is what that that assumed in uh, I guess even accepted framing is already. Right. Something that I've sort of toyed around with in my brain of just sort of a thought experiment mm. is what would museums, what would it look like if we had almost democratically uh, curated museums mm. uh, rather than art historians and, right. you know, artists curating museums? Because something I think you mentioned earlier is, you know, it would look very different if the, if this was submit submitted anonymously. And I think there's a lot of, especially stuff like modern art where you look at it and you go, right. this must be good because <laughs> yeah. so-and-so made it. Be. You just right. find it. Right. Exactly. And even if you don't get it, you're, you're like trying to fit it into what you know, good art to be, or, mm. you know, trying to get something out of it because you know, that, like you mentioned with, you know, if they snuck a terrible book into your right. reading curriculum, mm. um, you would you would get something out of it just from the pressure of like needing to, mm. and I I would love to see what it, what a museum would look like if you know, say there was one in it, according to population density right there's a public museum in each mm. group of however many citizens yeah, and that group of people, this would require an engaged populace sure, <laughs> <laughs> um, but pretending that we have that what would it look like if sort of the community voted on what art they liked best, mm. what they want to see in the museum anonymously, let's yeah. say too. Um, I think one, we would see something that's totally different from what were shown in the great museums as right. the greats. Um, and I think it would also be something that differs from region to region. And that would be really interesting mm. to see. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that would be the hardest thing to implement, you know, I mean, sure. Maybe, at scale, yes, but I think in an individual, as small as just a community center or something, you know, right. on, on some level, I think it's something that is, you know, an idea worth keeping a tab in because I think it really would be compelling. And I, I think people in those spaces would be interested in the idea because I think we, we all want that on some level, right? And we're not yeah. saying like, we want curators to not have jobs or whatever, you know, but. <laughs> and really, this is an anti-curator crusade. <laughs> I mean, don't tell the, the curators union <laughs> that. But yeah, just to jump back to one thing that you said, you were kind of talking about, uh, you, you know, a lot of modern art or even just different movements that there have been that seem to kind of get close to acknowledging this, where it's like they do these kind of absurd things or, you know, even with like Dadaism, where it's just like, mm -hmm. oh, it's just a fucking chair, you know, this right. is high art. Um, but at the same time, it's still... And granted, this is a set of assumptions, but it's almost like, but it's still, it's about who put that chair in the museum, right? right. It's like, oh, well, this guy, this person or whoever went to this school and like has done these things before, so they can kind of put out anything. But if right. some, you know, Joe off the street was just like, hey, man, this chair is art, people would be like, the fuck out, yeah. you know? Like, <laughs> totally. <laughs> but if the right person who, you know. You've already proved yourself. You know, you've gone yeah. to the right school or you've done the right. right things. It's like, okay, we'll we'll take your, you know, abstract art. But, you know, yeah. the, the random homeless guy, like, he, he needs to get out of here. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, That's such a big part of modern art. And I love modern and postmodern stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, any I love anything that calls attention to sort of the absurdity of all of these definitions and, right. you know, constructs that we've 
made for ourselves. Mm. Um, something that always makes me laugh is uh, my boyfriend will tell the story of when he went as a child, his older cousin took him to the MoMA in New York. Right. And there was this whole room where all the paintings in the entire room were just white squares. And I think some of them were mm. black, you know, yeah. white and black. And, you know, he's like, this is just a white canvas. Like there's not even any, mm. anything painted on it. I'm sure it was painted white, but sure. what's the difference? Yeah. You know, really. And he, I mean, he, he still gets emotional talking about this. Um, and like the sort of huge reaction that he had mm. at the time of like, this is bullshit. Art is bullshit. This is not art. Um, this is a waste of my time. Like just right. like hated, hated, hated the idea that some definitely widely respected modern artist had mm. assembled that yeah. and it was being curated, you know, displayed in like one of the most famous museums in the world. When he told me that story, I was like, I think the fact that you had that big reaction <laughs> is what proves that yeah. that was art, right? That's a huge win. Exactly. It, just like the fact that you're still upset <laughs> like <laughs> years later. You'll never forget that Really moment. powerful it's art. It's like a top five experience right. in life. He remembers it so distinctly. And he still is like, no, no, just because I'm angry doesn't make it art. But right. it's like, for me. That's a huge emotion. Yeah. That guy just put up some empty canvases and it affected his life for a decade <laughs> that's really good art <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's that's a the definition of a lasting impression so yeah. i mean kudos to kudos to them i, I can't right. say that i would have processed it probably any different as a young individual you know right. i probably would have been pretty upset about it and to your point it absolutely wouldn't have been hung in the moma if joe off the street is like look at these white and black squares right they'd just be like no congratulations <laughs> and we can all paint a square <laughs> that's yeah that, that's an interesting story but it, it really does illustrate that point that it's and, and who who really knows what the intent was you know right. was the intent to to average people right was it to challenge what makes if you put a dot in the middle then is it art if you paint a flower mm. where's the line yeah for me is what i think about mm. with that kind of thing for sure but for him it was something different <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah definitely um it's something i i kind of wanted to to spend a little time talking about so it i'll pivot a little bit here mm. uh but it does relate back to just kind of these these creative spaces and and the barriers that that are in place right now. And I think especially after a year like 2020, our whole collective future seems just a little bit grim, you know, or at the very least in jeopardy. And, you know, at, at times it also seems like our, our trajectory from from a technological perspective and just like an at-base progress perspective makes us feel like things are just getting exponentially easier and more comfortable and more automated. So we're kind of faced with this problem of how we how we look at our, our, our biggest challenges and, and how we move forward, considering that we have these kind of opposite trends that seem to be contradicting each other. And we need these incredibly creative, generative, imaginative people to feel confident enough to explore new ideas and, and innovations and, and work to, to get us out of this hole that we're in. Like, I think we all know that and our mm -hmm. ingenuity as a species is, seems to kind of be our only way out. And um, I'm just curious if you have any ideas about any societal shifts or, or just different ways of looking at it that might, as abstract as they might be, might be potential solutions for us. 
I wish I could just solve that for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that's a, a huge question, but um, well, in terms of art creation, um, I mean, if we're talking structural changes, mm. I, I always think you know education becoming more accessible is really kind of the key to everything. Mm. Personally, I feel like everything comes down to that. So, you know, in a country like America, where there's just like the access to different forms of education is so different from household to household, right. region to region. Um, I think that making that more uniform, uh, you know, high, elevating all of that access to right. a good education would change so much about the art that's being made. Um, I think that having access to those opportunities makes it easier for people to think creatively instead of having to think about how am I going to make ends meet? Mm -hmm. um, I'm always, I think that something like a universal basic income is mm -hmm. huge for that kind of thing because it just allows people that, you know, the time to like devote right. to what, you, you know, imagine how much more art we would have if people who were like working gas stations didn't have to work in gas stations if that was automated, for example. Yeah. Um, and they had income coming in from somewhere else, of exactly. course, you know, not just out of a job. But um, have you read uh, Looking Backward? No, Edward no, Bellamy? I believe so. It's, I read this in school. It was for a science fiction, like literature class that I took. Okay. And it's a, it's a really interesting book written in like 18, the 1880s. Okay. Um, and it's about a guy who falls asleep and wakes up in the year 2000 oh, and yeah. all the changes that the author sort mm -hmm. of expects would be implemented by then. And it's a super fascinating read. Obviously none of that is what happened. Although mm -hmm. there's a few things in there that are weirdly accurate, like credit cards. Uh, he just predicted. Hey, yeah. um, <laughs> well done. Yeah. But um, he talks a lot about sort of, well, essentially his, this author, Edward Bellamy's like imagining for a utopian future right. society is this totally collective um, process that has universal basic income. Okay. And uh, to read that whole book was so amazing for me because it lays out basically like I think the way it works in the book is you are sort of sorted by your aptitude into whatever, you know, you, whatever field you will do the best at and you work, okay. but a doctor gets paid the same amount as a waiter or a construction worker or whatever. Hmm. Um, and it's a comfortable amount, you know, and uh, just like, I mean, it's a f fictional, obviously work, but the, the sort of way that art is, um, held up in this utopian society as like the okay, ultimate yeah. contribution and the value that people place on just like society and, and like public spaces being improved upon so that yeah. everyone can enjoy them is something that I think, I mean, I just think those things go hand in hand. Right. Wanting to make, a place that's easier for people to get through and constructing that kind of society that lifts everyone up to the same place. Of course you can make the argument that art comes out of suffering, but I don't think that it necessarily needs to. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, lucky for us, we're, we're nowhere near 
eliminating suffering, you know? So that's, <laughs> that is lucky. That's, that's a problem that I don't think we'll have to tackle too soon, but it is, I do think universal basic income is, is a very compelling idea considering where we are now, but even also considering the fact that in the relatively near future, it's possible that we are able to, from a technological perspective, automate things to a point that which we don't really need everyone to be working and we're able right. to become efficient enough in a lot of our, our most basic needs that we're, we're able to generate enough wealth. Scarcity isn't a problem. Right. And we kind of have to decide what to do with ourselves at, at that point. And I think we're close to a po- post toil existence, mm, right? We're yeah. almost kind of done with need exactly. Like you said, needing to work like, that's my idea of a utopia that I think is very not far off at all. Yeah. I mean, I think it's perfectly possible in, in the relatively near future. And we're obviously not prepared at all for, for something like that to happen or what would happen to the individuals who aren't quote unquote needed right. anymore. And in that sense, and to, to speak to what you kind of said before, even just speaking about education, that we we absolutely need to raise the floor, you know, right. uh, across the board in so many different ways, especially there, but raising the floor so that it's, there's some sort of a safety net that people can very literally take risks and, you know, mm-hmm. take leaps of faith. And if you fall, it's like, okay, I right. failed. But you're not going to fall all the way to the bottom. Right. You, you're not going to end up in some sort of horrific place. It's sure you're not exactly where you want to be, but we, we need people to, to feel comfortable taking risks. And I think to some extent, people from our generation specifically struggle with that because we we were kind of raised by this generation of, of helicopter parents, if yeah. you will, that was a bit of an overcorrection in their generation, sure. you know, the, the past generation that they are incredibly risk averse and they tried to kind of make our lives as easy as possible and, and remove all obstacles and just... Th- with, with totally good intent, right. uh, tried to make things, you know, as comfortable as they could for us, but we didn't necessarily grow super accustomed to, to taking risks. And it's not something that our educational system promotes. It's not something that really any of our institutions promote. And so it, it certainly has created a certain stagnation in a lot of different fields that I think some people maybe aren't as aware of because it often feels like, okay, because of technology, this one sphere is always moving forward so incredibly fast that we're like, oh man, the new iPhone, like that shit is awesome. But it's like, but in physics, have we figured anything out, (laughs) you know, since the seventies, anything significant? Not really. And in a lot of spaces, even healthcare, you know, basic things that just haven't improved in so long. Right. And, but we get kind of, you know, the veil pulled over our eyes because of the technology and the computing power and how it's just always flying forwards. But in all these other spaces and institutions, it's just people aren't comfortable taking risks. People aren't comfortable being wrong. And the, you know, the cost of, of being alienated or being considered too radical or whatever is so high that people just tend to kind of go where they're generally told. And it doesn't seem like that's going to be enough, you know, to solve climate change or prevent a nuclear holocaust and, you know, the next few decades are just, you know, 
I could go down a line of problems that we just don't really have great solutions to and that seem kind of grim when you think about them. And it feels as though our only way out is to to restructure things in some sense that, that promotes people, promotes the sense of just, it, it sounds general, but just being creative and, and, and yeah. being that everyone should to some degree exist in that space and should be trying to access different sides of themselves and putting their work out into the world and being okay with, with criticism and being wrong or just being able to find themselves in, in that very developmental time instead of being like, ah, I just, I got to have everything figured out and I need right. to pick my path and I need to not fuck up. Right. Yeah. It's hard to come up with a plan for that. I, I think, I mean, I've always, I'm always of the mind of sort of shifting things towards a, just a more collective mindset in every way possible mm-hmm. helps with that. And I wonder what, yeah. I mean, I definitely think that sort of having that access to resources that is so unequal right now mm-hmm. would help so much with that too. Right. I definitely think that if college was just free, that would solve a lot of that or not solve, but move nudge sure. us in the right direction. Something else I've, I've toyed with in my mind is this idea of like, you know, there are a lot of countries that have a draft or like required military mm-hmm. service. I, I'm pretty uh, anti-military, but I, I like the idea of having some kind of service draft that mm-hmm. people would have to go into gotcha. before starting college. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be, you know, and I'm not thinking about the military. I'm thinking about um, almost like just an, a a public service core that sure. basically you can't buy your way out of or bypass really mm-hmm. um and say for two years you just and you could indicate when you sign up for this what your preference is or what subject you're interested in mm-hmm. and you know maybe you're teaching kindergarten for two years or you're painting buildings mm-hmm. or like building roads or right i mean there's so many different things that need to be done sure, yeah. <laughs> um and i feel like that would help us um, one sort of build out our skill set from what we maybe anticipate it to be as children and high schoolers. Mm-hmm. I think you get a sense of like, well, I'm good at, at science, so I'm going to have to study science in college and become a scientist or mm-hmm. art comes easily to me. So I'm going to become an artist. And yeah. I think that just being immersed in something maybe different from that would be valuable and, and would also just like make people take college and the resources available in the collegiate setting more seriously or like more just put people more in a position where they can take advantage of um, the sort of really unique experience of having like a four year period to, to fail. Right. Right. Not fail your classes, but like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't always feel that way. Right. You know, I think that it's, it's rare that that's kind of the, the university experience that, that people have these days is that it is this, I mean, and in a lot of personal ways, it, it is this exploration of self, but academically, often not so much, right? you know, and there's practical reasons for that. You know, sure, you have to focus on something to, to get a degree or, or what have you, but it's still, I think even something like you're mentioning might allow people to 
gain a little bit of perspective and explore themselves a little bit at the right age prior to college if that's what they elect to do so that right. maybe they can go into it with a little bit more sense of themselves sense of what they feel like could give them purpose in life and so it's right. not like you're just kind of stumbling through it and then you just end up with a degree and you're like oh okay i guess i'm gonna do this yeah. <laughs> i guess this is what i do now <laughs> yeah. um and but, you get sort of those first two years of like just not being at home out of mm-hmm. the way too before you go into like then learning yeah yeah i mean I, I think it's a it's a good model and i think maybe some other countries do it a little bit better than others as far as yeah even if it is you know, it's technically military service, but there's lots of different Israel's branches. Israel's perfect example. Yeah. There's lots of things that you can do. And you can it's, be like in the military, like radio show department in Israel. Yeah, <laughs> you know, know uh, and, and granted, it's a very different country and every country is different and, and its needs and, the, you know, the size of its, its military and its aims and, and all that, you know, nitty gritty stuff. But I, I think it's a, a model that would be helpful just to even I hear some people talk about this sometimes like everyone should work like a customer service job, right? Yeah, like, I definitely think that's true. You know, <laughs> or retail. Or something, you yeah. know, where you are kind of being humbled on a daily basis yeah. and just being exposed to all different kinds of people, uh, at least in most circumstances you are, where it's you just have to learn to work with others. And just in a position where like your needs are not at all what come into the equation. (laughs) Like you are there for someone else's needs to be met. Mm. And I think that that's so vital for just like, yeah, exactly. Humbleness. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, I think that is a a huge piece for the average individual that it can be hard to teach or even suggest or put on other people's radar. Like it is just kind of an experiential thing where just putting yourself in the backseat for a little while and whatever, there's lots of different forms of that and lots of different ways to achieve that, that maybe are more efficient or preferable than like working in a restaurant. But sure. it is one of those things that you just can't, you, you can't move through that experience without at some point, you know, just kind of giving in to the, the kind of just the collective aim of that institution, you know, right. and that's, you know, kind of maybe a more general way of putting it, but it's still, I found personally to be to be incredibly valuable, and I think if we could have something on that front, it definitely would would just give young people a different perspective on the value that they can provide, and just a little bit more of a of a collectivist standpoint. Not that we want to reduce what people are at base as, as individuals, because I think to some degree that also they kind of feed into each other in a way where to recognize that we all are kind of in this together and that our our biggest problems have to be solved together by nature. Like we can't, we can't not be on the same page and and get anywhere worth going and that, but we still need the, the iniquity of every individual to, to solve problems and then to come up with these very, very abstract solutions that will help push us forward. Like we still need that. But it has to be within this framing that it's not really about you or your art or right. your your work or whatever it is that you do. It's it's that we're all acknowledging the value that's in each individual and not excluding anyone right. from the conversation or, or excluding anyone at base, but just giving people 
the resources and the the capacity to just think about things in a in a not that it's like everyone needs to be sitting around being like how do I save the world but in a way kind of you know right. that everyone what can I contribute is, to this right everyone feels like they're a part of this thing that we're trying to accomplish and obviously that's been incredibly powerful throughout history how we've kind of continued to extend this group that we're able to yeah. you know consider you know a part of us and that's it's the thing that sets us apart from chimpanzees for example yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, there's not much but that's, <laughs> right. that's definitely one and in a way it's it, it's a kind of an interesting perspective on something like nationalism because i think currently yeah. it tends to have a pretty negative connotation for for reasonable you know right explanations but at the same time it was this incredible feet of humanity that we were able to like get people on board these like millions of other people because of this one story that we told them right. that unified them they could be like oh these are my these are my brothers and sisters these i would die for these people right when we're only really built to be able to kind of understand and, and contextualize like maybe 200 people max you know right. like a, a small tribe where like this is it you know and so this idea that we've gotten to a point where we can be nationalistic is kind of incredible, even though it obviously has its faults. Right. Um, and it's the power of like mythology that can sort of, or like an, a narrative, mm -hmm. right? You, my tribe is better than your tribe, or even like my family is more important than your family, right. which we all feel, right? I would much rather save my own parents from, you know, from a burning building than some strangers, right? That right. would be more important to me. Of course. But it's a lie that they're more important or their their lives are more yeah. valuable. So that mythology like really allows us to structure ourselves at yeah, all. <laughs> for sure. I mean, and it's it's difficult to think about what that that next story might be, right? That we can all kind of get on board with. Because if I think if we can be totally honest, it it's all kind of a story, right? You know, like everything that mm -hmm. we do and experience in the world, it's not base reality per se you know we're not ever totally being honest with ourselves or others because that's what it takes to be a person in the world and not like just curl up in a corner and never move you <laughs> right. know like we have to you know we have to do a certain degree of narrative building and, and framing just to to move through the world and, and be a part of society and in order to be in relation to others in a productive way, we also have to connect ourselves and, and tell a story that is helpful. And it's, it's not totally clear what that next big story is that will kind of bring us together. And I think we've started to approach, I mean, I don't know, it's hard to say, I guess maybe this year, but mm -hmm. uh, more of a, a globalistic perspective where it's, okay, we're, we're trying to solve these problems together and we're, we're all in the same boat. And Sure, Certainly the say. pandemic like has contributed to that mm -hmm. going through, you know, the, the primary sort of thing that has colored my life this year is the same thing that has colored so many people's lives in every part Everywhere, of the world, yeah. rich or poor, like any kind of sort of distinction you can make between mm -hmm. people. We're all affected whether or not we choose to sort of live life like we're affected by this mm -hmm. pandemic, but it's, it's extending to everyone. And I feel like that's definitely bringing that kind of perspective into people's lives. Right. Yeah. Not as much as you would <laughs> maybe hope, but some people. 
Sure. And I, I think that gets us a long way. And if we could get to some sort of a point where we could say, all right, we're as humans, you know, we're all on the same level. We're all on the same page. We don't want to go extinct. Just evolutionarily speaking, like how do we, how do we work this out? So that in a thousand years, like we're still here. And of course you can continue to abstract it more and more where it's like, okay, well, what about all other living things on this planet? Right. Or what about all things period? You know, what about, right. what about all matter in the universe? It's, it's going to take a while before we're all concerned about all of that. But I think we're at least starting to approach a sense of, of global unity. And in some countries, in some places, mm -hmm. it's, it's starting to become at least something that we're acknowledging that it's not even necessarily about this like kumbaya sense of, of who we are as a species, but it's like, this is the only way through, you know, right. we're not going to, as, as a, you know, individualist country in a lot of ways, like we're, mm -hmm. we, we can't just be like, all right, we're, we're the U S we're just going to, you know, we're going to keep our carbon emissions in right. check, you know, right. like we're going to, because it doesn't. We're all on this planet, unfortunately. <laughs> right. We're, we share a home. Or fortunately, I guess, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I see where you're going with that. Um, but yeah, it's, we all at base seem to kind of suffer from the same things, have, have the same problems, have the same desires. And I think that is one of the easiest points of relation that we have to everyone is that we, we are kind of driven by the same things and we all want to live decent lives and we want to take care of our families and, and the people that we care about. And on some level, it's just taking that next step and saying the only way to do that sustainably is in some sort of communion with others. And that has to kind of be a little bit of a global perspective, but you know, Rome wasn't built in a day and I, <laughs> I don't think we're necessarily here to solve the world's problems, but I think just growing accustomed to, to thinking that way and, and, and putting those things out there and not feeling like totally, having this kind of defeatist mentality to talk about these things because it, it happens, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. It's very easy to just kind of throw your hands up in the air and be like, yeah, we're kind of fucked. You yeah, know, it's, it feels this that is, way. <laughs> this, is, this is not trending properly. Uh, but yeah, I think a lot of that is is kind of part of the problem that it's, it's not normal to really try to sit down and, and work through these things or just to to see what, what is there or to, you know, sit across from someone who has a different perspective and say, what can we find common ground on? Um, mm -hmm. but to make kind of a hard pivot here, it's something <laughs> I wanted to get to before we, uh, have to wrap up pretty soon here, actually, we've been sure. going a while. Um, wow. but, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, something that I guess I know you have a particular experience with that, I guess you can either speak to or not, but I know that you've spent a, a good amount of time in your life, you know, trying to make others laugh in some capacity or another to, to entertain others. And I'm curious if you just have any reflections on the role of, of comedy and entertainment uh, in society after a year like 2020, that was just so, sure. I mean, you, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's not really a great adjective there. No even need to finish that sentence. Um, I mean, I certainly am always of the mind that comedy is among our sort of greatest tools that mm -hmm. we have. Um, for me, it's always been 
probably started out as a bit of a coping mechanism for, Mm. you know, example, as I spoke to earlier, like just being kind of like a weird child (laughs) individual. (laughs) Um, yeah, just like weirdo who has to then, you know, you need to go through the school system. You need to like become part of society. Mm. I think humor was always something that I could utilize to sort of defend myself. And then that comes back into play, I think, when something like the year 2020 is happening. Right. Um, the whole Trump presidency, sure. for example. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, when he was first elected, we saw all these comedians being like, you know, this is going to be great for comedy. And yeah. and I think that that very much wasn't, I mean, there's been some great comedy that's come out in the last four years, but it's all been about Trump. Like, yeah, it's... <laughs> it's rare to find something that can really make you laugh and feel like you're not in this sort of horrible period of time. Mm. And there's, it's still valuable to have, to make fun. It's so valuable to, to make fun of what is happening and to not sort of use it as this distraction or escape. Right. And I think it's also just a, a tool of self-reflection, you know, individual self-reflection, societal self-reflection, satire can be so um effective at getting people to sort of see the absurdity mm-hmm. in what they're doing day to day or what they're a part of or what they're contributing towards um for me it's always been the most the easiest and the most sort of fun way to ask those big questions or turn just to turn things on their head right it comes it goes back to even like dadaism which is mm-hmm. very funny and part of yeah. why I love it so much um, is, you know, everything that we do is stupid and absurd, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I, I, I think it's so important to like, to just not take yourself too seriously, really mm. at any time, yeah. <laughs> if at all possible, it's better to laugh. Mm. I, um, this is tangentially related, but I was reading some, you know, I think a a lot of people have been sharing like old newspaper clippings from like the 1918 influenza when they were going through Uh, a similar national crisis, Mm -hmm. uh, to an extent global crisis, but not in the same way really. Um, and I saw this little tidbit that was like, you know, some people are afraid to wear their masks because they think it might make them look funny, Mm -hmm. but wouldn't you rather subject yourself to a little comedy than to a tragedy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's 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 definitely interesting to see even just uh I guess the form that comedy has has taken this year and mm-hmm. for comics specifically you know the the basis of what they do has kind of just been like totally like you have to acknowledge the political climate and Right. It's it, it's something that you have to address, you have to talk about, but also in 2020, you know, let's just say your average comic who's, you know, doing nightly shows like see that's not really happening in its normal sense and so we've had these people who in theory are under normal circumstances providing a lot of value to our lives and and kind of in in a a way being these generative forces who have had to find different ways to express that i know like you know even places like new york where they they've continued to do shows out in the park and and in fine ways even though it, it seems like 
you know, it's kind of like hell for them, you know? It's, right. it's the worst. It's like 3.30 p.m. They have to shout over, like, the sounds of Central Park. <laughs> right. It's, People have their no dogs money, there. You know? yeah. it's, <laughs> but in a way, they still are, they're still trying. And, and how beautiful is that? Like, these comedians whose whole sort of, like, being a stand-up comedian is just fucking failure right. every day, you know? Mm. Uh, and, and you have to do that. Like, there's no comedian that hasn't bombed a thousand times right. if they're if they're any good. Um, and I love, I've loved going to these outdoor shows in Central Parks because it, mm. Central Park, because it's like, I, I can't hear what they're saying, yeah. <laughs> you know? It's, it's uncomfortable. Right. And they're still out there, like, just doing, just doing it because they believe in it so much. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like also just... So much of what is valuable about comedy, at least in that format, is the fact that it is this person up there who seems to be so aware of themselves and their flaws that they that in theory, that is kind of what it takes because you have to be so like you failed so much. And like bombing as a comedian is kind of like just the most mortifying it's right. like trying to make people laugh and it not happening at all it's the worst feeling is such direct <laughs> and just harsh feedback and if the audience gets any sort of a sense that someone maybe isn't totally aware of their flaws like you kind of lose them in a way that yeah. comedians kind of have to be self-deprecating in a way that they have to kind of come out and like acknowledge everything that you're already like they come up and you're just like judging the shit out of them right because right. like, people do automatically and unless, unless they kind of acknowledge all of that and who they are and, and their vibe the audience isn't totally with you and so yeah. they have to it is almost this kind of therapeutic experience of being up there and just kind of exposing yourself and acknowledging everything yeah. but at the same time kind of subjecting your audience to that as well i think comedians that do it really well like it, there is a certain vulnerability even like going to like a small comedy show because you you know they might come at you you know they might they might <laughs> heckle you know you know they yeah. might pick you out or, or say something or they might you know make a joke that makes you feel a little uncomfortable or they might kind of call out something that that you've been doing or that you've been thinking and it is this kind of reflective experience where you're like oh shit you know i, I didn't think about it that way or you know it, it, sometimes you could frame it as just jokes but you know, as, as they say. Truth and comedy. Yeah, and nothing's really that funny that, that doesn't isn't based in truth to some extent. So it, it is this this interesting space where we are allowed to kind of explore ourselves and be exposed and open to, to criticism and, and being a little bit uncomfortable. And like there's there's gonna be some that fall a little flat and that make you feel a little weird and to be able to kind of explore it. Like why why do I feel uncomfortable right now? You know, what is right. it about that joke that this person up here is like, you know, trying to make a living and, and do their job that like they said something and now I feel this way, you know, it's, it's interesting to just to be able to have that opportunity. And I think it would have been really tragic if that, if we totally lost that. And I think because of modernity that, you know, people have still been able to record things and, and yeah. put things out and, and do these shows. In the park, awesome so. Instagram live comedy shows, which is <laughs> everyone's favorite thing. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's still there and it's still very much, a part of our lives. And I think that was something that you, you know, in most points in history probably would have just been like, all right, we're just going to totally put that on the back burner right. during a situation like this. But it, it has been interesting just to see the form that it's taken and, and the value that it's provided, at least to me, to be able to to occasionally just step back from it all and, and, and have a good laugh and 
reflect a little bit because these people, I feel like even more so now more so than ever, it is kind of a, a final frontier of sorts for, you know, just free thought and expression and being able to get things wrong. And, you know, they're, they're just working on their material. Right. And it's not always going to work. And, and sometimes it is, it's going to be a little uncomfortable and <laughs> people right. might get a little bit offended, but they're, they're working out ideas kind of on the fly. And, and a lot of times they don't know what they're going to say and right. you, you know what their intent is. So you kind of take it for what it is, but we don't necessarily always give individuals in the real world that benefit of the doubt. We're like, we all are just kind of trying to work through our ideas. Right. And sometimes we're going to say stupid shit that doesn't come across how we thought it would. Um, but that space and comedians can always kind of be like, Oh, it's just jokes. You know, like I'm just trying to make people laugh, even though in a way they're trying to do something more than that. Right. You know, they are trying to speak to things that are somewhat true and that resonate. And, and maybe the line is a little too fine between. Yeah. It's hard to draw that line between what is a, what is an uncomfortable observation Mm -hmm. and pushing something. I mean, it's important for comedy to walk that line of, uh, between comfort and discomfort right. and what we're sort of used to hearing and what feels wrong for us mm-hmm. to hear. Certainly there, um, there are both valid and invalid criticisms, I think of this sort of cancel culture that we hear so much sure. about right now. Um, and I, I forget which comedian it was that said this, it might've been Jerry Seinfeld, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, a comedian was talking about, cancel culture and was talking mm. about, you know, I promise I didn't want that joke to go that badly. You know? <laughs> I wanted it to work. Right. I really thought that was going to be a nice moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and sort of to what you were saying, like it, there's so, it's so valuable for there to be a space where you can kind of just work through your thoughts in that mm-hmm. sense. But it, it gets just so much more complicated when these people are like, have this platform and if people love to, like reframe their ways of thinking, I think Mm. around like what celebrities say. And so it gets into this weird touchy territory. It's very influential. You know, it's not that like it doesn't exist in a bubble and it's not like it can't have consequences. And it's not like, you know, there aren't young impressionable people out there who are, who look up to certain comedians per se. And, they could make something you could say something in jest and someone's like you know that somewhat subconsciously affects how you think about the world like it's sure i think some comedians maybe do feel a little bit that there's almost like too much sanctity to what they do or that it's like they that anything you should be able to say literally anything and, and that they kind of have a free pass right and to be fair i don't think i'm like too far from that perspective like i get it and i think um when something is said in jest, like there, there is a certain benefit of the doubt that that should be given. But at the same time, I think there's a fine line between, uh, you know, a comedian who's on a nightly basis, like just trying to more so work through the material and someone who's like, okay, this is my recorded special. I've right. worked on this for a year and a half. I chose this to go. This in. has yeah. fallen dead <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hundreds of times and I'm just going to stick with it. Right. You know, um, we're like, sure. You could catch someone on a bad night and be like, man, they're kind of an asshole or like, right. that wasn't great. But 
that is kind of their process. And there's few art forms that are like that, where you're seeing this constant iterative process of where right. someone's going with something. And just because they say it on one night, especially when it's largely improvised in most cases, you know, you're up there and you don't really know what's going to come out of your mouth. You can only hold someone so much to that. Yeah. But anywho, I think it's something that, that I've certainly appreciated a lot this year just to kind of continue to try to just involve it in my everyday life to, to give me a sense of perspective and to often get a little bit, especially, and granted, I guess this isn't as relevant this year, but like live comedy or even like open mics and things like that under more normal circumstances, um, it does give you a, a better sense of perspective than even, you know, recorded stuff or like what's in specials. Cause I feel like often there's a particular framing there where it's like, yeah, it's polished. Okay, yeah, yeah. We, 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 we let a certain kind of comedian. Right. Only their fans are there, with it, you know, yeah. <laughs> but you know, the, the value of being able to just go to like a local show and just see a diverse group of people speak to different things and just being exposed to different opinions and you know, within this framing where, like I said, you're able to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt, but at the same time, it's, you don't always get that in your everyday life in your own bubble where you're kind of like, you know, you're around a similar, you know, a very selective number of people this year, particularly where it, it has been this kind of weird side effect of, 2020 where it's like okay we already had our bubbles that were probably too insulated but now right. like, we have very literal ones Tighten where it's those, like yeah. you know you kind of get this kind of group think going on where it's like you talk to the same people about the same things right and it's very hard to step outside of that and i feel like in those spaces it's a certain degree of of, of irreverence is, is or even just you know free thinking or just willingness to take risks is there that you just kind of see a better idea of what the spectrum of opinions is on things or um, in a way that of course can be funny and very valuable just for that, but also just kind of an, an eye opener um, that I, I look forward to, to doing more of hopefully in the future as, as things yeah. kind of, you know, hopefully clear up and, and that can become a more, more normal thing to get back I to. I can't wait to be able to <laughs> go back to like going into tiny little comedy clubs with like a sticky floor <laughs> yeah, and spell, spending fifteen dollars <laughs> on one drink. <laughs> exactly. The, so you can hear six like schmucks be like, you know, <laughs> be all right. Have you guys yeah. thought about how weird it is that we all wear shoes every day? <laughs> and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah I guess so. <laughs> it's uh, so valuable <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, well, I guess you know, speaking of you know, just kind of eye-opening things, perspective changes. I, I did want to kind of wrap up on a, a different framing on a question I tend to ask towards the end here, which is essentially if you could be the the information czar, if you will, if, you know, basically in the transition between 2020 and 2021, you could just update everyone's software in a sense that they could just have a deep understanding of a single creative work, whatever that may be, that it would just be, you know, across the globe, every single person and, you know, whatever language works for them. Is is there anything that, that comes to mind? Hmm. Such an exciting power. I would love to possess this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, now you know what to ask from a genie if yeah, you exactly. that chance. Um, there are a few things that come to mind right away. Um, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is Kurt Vonnegut's 
Slaughterhouse-Five, which has always been one of my favorite books. Have you read? No, I haven't, actually. You would love it. Um, It is, like, it's funny, first of all, which is the most important thing to me in really anything. But um, it has so many, I think, like, deeply human truths that it examines about sort of what it means to let go of the illusion of control Mm -hmm. over the course that your life is going to take. Right. It, in essence, it's about someone who becomes unstuck in time and just oh, okay. moves backwards and forwards in his own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and some other wacky things happen. Aliens are involved. World War II oh, is involved. Great. Yeah, it's it's a great book. But um, there's just such a Zen sort of mindset that I mm-hmm. think it promotes um, in this sort of acceptance of what is going to happen is going to happen to a certain extent. Y- mm-hmm. You know, you, you have free will although i don't know if actually vonnegut would agree that you have free will but yeah, i do think I that know. you do <laughs> i mean we don't have to get into it sure there's a I... whole other kind of worms um sure i'm not going to settle on that as my final answer though but that's my runner-up oh, okay um i think that the thing especially in 2020 2021 in sort of just the the cultural milieu of what we've been experiencing um the movie do the right thing is Mm. the most prescient and just like hits home so hard. Yeah. I I rewatched it this summer um, when all of the protests were happening in the U S and, and lots of other places too. Um, And it just, it's also funny (laughs) and it does helps. Yeah, it really does help. And it does such a beautiful job. I think of sort of, illustrating the strengths and weaknesses of the two sort of somewhat contradictory, but somewhat complementary schools of thought Mm. um, of, of nonviolence versus self-preservation. And it incorporates the sort of ideas of MLK and Malcolm X, for example, of, Mm. you know, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind versus, uh, violence when it's self-protection is intelligence, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's something that we all sort of, it just affects everyone. And going back to tribalism, for example, the ways that, you know, injustices against your group can elevate into this sort of hatred and rage, rightfully infuriating, right? And and painful. And, you know, that it, you know, again, this is subjective, but I think most people would agree that, you know, is the correct response to, to injustice is just, is to feel this indignation and fury. But then how do you channel that? Do you, is strict justice and making it even Mm -hmm. the correct response? Or is it about moving forward from there and making sure that that doesn't happen to another group of people again? Mm -hmm. And I just love that movie. I think it does an amazing job of, yeah, of just illustrating, like, look at all these different groups and they hate each other. Right. And they're all the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's it's an incredibly relevant one. And I'll, I'll definitely have to watch it again soon. Um, and I think just to your point, it, it kind of reminded me with the MLK mm-hmm. day coming up that I'll just kind of insert this. For, to answer the question <laughs> myself in a way just spend some time 
with his work. You know, I feel like for some reason uh, we tend to be a little bit distant from it these days. And uh, I won't even go into it uh, on a, on a deeper level, but I just feel like that's something that has always been helpful for me to just kind of go back to his work and, and the things that, that he did and said, and I just feel like they're as relevant as ever right now, uh, especially after you're like 2020. Um, but yeah, I've, I've honestly had a, had a great time doing this today. Me too. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I don't spend enough time talking about these, these sorts of things. So it was, it was honestly enjoyable to, to get back into it a little bit. And I, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. All right. And thanks for joining. Thank you.